Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Dash of Cold Water Economics, this one for the week ending the 17th of January. Uh, in it, as usual, I'm going to stand under the cataract of economic data that comes crashing down every week and tries to sort the shocks from the surprises. Um, but in addition, this week, I want to look particularly closely at what we've learned about China in 2019. Later on, I'll run through uh, the global data and just give you a quick rundown. Uh, globally, it was uh, a very narrowly positive week. 21 surprises, 20% shocks. Um, with Asia and uh, US both sharply positive, but uh, Europe solidly negative. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But right now, let's get stuck into China because really, um, it's horrifying to think about it, but I've spent uh, really the thick end of three decades now looking at China uh, and China's economy. Um, and why not? It's uh, the biggest, been the biggest story of the world. And in fairness, uh, there's almost always been something really interesting or scary or exciting going on. Uh, but I have to say that now we've got all the data in for 2019, I can confirm that 2019 has been about the dullest year I've known for China's economy. I construct uh, momentum indicators for domestic demand, uh, for the industrial economy, and for monetary conditions, uh, basically aggregating a whole bunch of uh, monthly indicators and measuring them against seasonal trends. And when I look at those... I have to say that uh, domestic demand trends uh, have ended the year 12 months uh, roughly almost exactly on trend. Uh, industrial momentum, industrial economy has also ended the world just about exactly uh, on trend. And uh, as for monetary conditions, uh, well, we've had um, an attempt to uh, loosen monetary conditions which uh, have been half-hearted at best and have been slowly and inconsequentially sort of petering out since uh, about the, f about, about the, about the uh, middle of the year. Worse, 2019 was a year in which none of the problems we can identify in China have been addressed, so there's been no substantial progress made in solving them. What are these problems? Uh, I think they're fairly well known. Issues of excessive leverage uh, and the associated interest rate vulnerability that, that China is now uh, hostage to, uh, the economic inefficiency of the financial system, and uh, the long-term erosion of the government's tax base. None of these issues have been grasped this year, non-rectified. And consequently, the extent to which these compromise China's long-term prospects remain unchanged. And uh, I think at this point, it's probably worth pointing out that, yes, uh, the external environment was relatively hostile to China, but even within that, China did better than any of its Northeast Asia export competitors in export markets, and it raised its uh, market share of Northeast Asian exports by 1.4 percentage points to a record 61.2%. So, this export dominance continues despite all the headlines that we've seen about uh, the Trump trade war. Uh, but also we know that this sort of export dominance is no longer to sufficient to nullify the sort of long-standing structural problems that China has and seems unwilling to grasp right now. 
And let's be clear what those problems are. At the heart of China's issues really is fiscal weakness. I know that sounds strange because we consider um, the Communist Party to be very strong, Xi Jinping to be very strong, etc., etc. But the fact is, this is an administrative state that is increasingly neglecting or losing its ability to tax the economy in a way it needs to do if it's going to fulfill its broader social, political, strategic ambitions. And in the absence of that fiscal firepower, it must inevitably continue to depend upon a financial system which from time to time is going to be willing to bend to administrative guidance. Or, you know, And I'm not sort of arguing here that this is absolute, but it still happens, I think. Uh, and results in basically a debt-oriented financial system. Um, and this alternative tends to impair the operational efficiency of the whole finance, financial system, which in turn leads the economy to run at relatively high um, leverage ratios. So let's just go at that again. You have a fiscal problem, unwilling to grasp the fiscal problem. You turn it into a debt problem. Eventually, the debt problem gets so big that um, financial efficiency becomes impaired and ratios just go up and up and up. And that's essentially the starting point for China's problems. So I think uh, a useful entry point into this whole tangle is I think you've got to look at the poor ability of the state to tax the economy. Now, in the 12 months to November, um, China's government revenues, which includes local and central taxes, those revenues rose by only 3.7%. And probably by the year end, they'll probably be up about 3.8% for 2019 as a whole. At those levels, that cuts revenues as a percentage of GDP to just 19.1%, which is the lowest it's been since 2009. And it's down from a high of 22.4% in the middle of 2016. Now, this... Uh, for the time being, you've got to say that the government has seemingly just given up its attempt to strengthen its fiscal grip, which it made so vigorously, really between, well, really from the mid-1990s to about 2010, 2011. Now, just how long the government is prepared to go on letting this fiscal capacity slide, I, I, I don't know. Generally speaking, uh, the problem is either neither acknowledged or discussed publicly. However, if you have a continuing atrophying of the government's ability to tax, then if you've got financial problem, uh, if you've got ambitions for the government, those are going to be met and financed by an, a, a rising reliance on debt for the government itself and, of course, for its corporate uh, offshoots. So you quickly go from the fiscal position to the question of leverage. And on the broad count of domestic credit, which uh, PBOC publishes, uh, that rose about 10.4% in 2019, which is down from 10.9% in 2018. So, you know, not much there. And that lifted credit to GDP uh, ratio to 215.2% in 2019 from 211.9% in 2018. If you use the broader aggregate social financing tally, 
uh, debt to GDP ratios are up to 251.7% versus about 247% in the previous year. In other words, although the efforts of the last five years to get a grip on China's financial system, all that's basically happened is they've managed roughly to stabilize China's debt to GDP ratio and, and not brought it down at all. Not at all. In fact, it, 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 it continues to rise just more slowly. And this means that China's economy remains hostage to very low interest rate environment. A world of sustained low interest rates is as crucial to China as anybody else, and arguably more so. Even if you uh, look at annual 10-year bond yields averaging about 3.2% in 2019, and even assuming that all domestic credit was paid at these low rates, which it won't be, interest rate payments alone on that debt will be equivalent to essentially the entire increase in nominal GDP in 2019. And this has been the situation since about 2016, and without a substantial reduction in debt to GDP, this will not change. Now, China can ease itself out of this situation only if it manages to improve the economic efficiency of its financial system. In other words, it needs to get more bang from every buck it puts out in either bank lending or bond, bond uh, issuance or equity issuance or all the other things that go into um, the aggregate finance. But here too, in 2019 was another wasted year. During 2019, every 100 yuan in new bank lending was associated with only 47 yuan in extra nominal GDP. And that's down from 54 yuan in 2018 and down from a 10-year average of 61 yuan. In other words, bank lending is not getting more efficient relative to the economy. If you take the broader aggregate financing measure, every 100 yuan of this financing added only about an extra 33 yuan of nominal GDP, and that was down from 41 yuan in 2018. The gains in efficiency which China did manage to squeeze out in the early stages of the credit tightening have now been given back partly because that squeeze was left on for too long, so it started to actually cut into the bone and do some real commercial damage. And then, of course, because it was relaxed, it needed because it needed to be relaxed quite simply because of that damage. In short, China's attempt at disciplining its financial system into more economically efficient behavior, which initially looked kind of like they were going to be able to do it, has failed and is failing. Is it all bad news? Uh, are there no positives to be had? Well, yes, there are a couple, but they are somewhat anemic. Um, looking back at the beginning of last year, I said, okay, I think what's going to happen to China is around the middle of the year, China's private nominal domestic demand, i.e. nominal GDP once you X out fiscal and trade balances, would beginning, begin to acceler accelerate, albeit less dramatically than we've seen in previous cycles. And I said that because there's been historically a pretty tight link between changes in the monetary conditions that I measure and changes in private nominal domestic demand. And this had, did actually happen. Uh, it arrived slightly later than expected and was also fairly weak, but it did arrive. Um, growth in the 12-month private nominal domestic demand 
in the national accounts bottomed out at about 6.6% in third quarter, which was uh, one quarter later than I expected, and it recovered to about 7.6% in the fourth quarter. So, you know, that's, there is still an anemic um, inflection, uh, an upward inflection point. Um, and I think that will probably, that improvement will probably be maintained uh, for the next nine months. But it seems unlikely to be pushed much more vigorously next year because uh, essentially of the peaking out of the monetary stimulus, um, that that impact will sort of peak out in the first quarter of this year. So quite possibly this uptick in private nominal domestic demand is probably about as good as it's going to get. There are two other things that I think have turned up. I calculate a return on capital directional indicator essentially by estimating changes in capital stock and comparing it to changes in nominal GDP growth. Uh, I also look uh, at Kalecki profits. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with the idea behind Kalecki profits, um, the idea is that uh, Kalecki profits equals the sum of uh, net investments plus the impact of uh, all uh, dissavings or saving patterns from uh, the public sector, um, from the household sector, and also from from the foreign sector. Uh, And in both cases, both the directional, um, the return on capital directional indicator and Kalecki profits, I think probably did turn up, but kind of only very slightly. Starting with the Kaleckis, Um, I should first of all acknowledge that, frankly, the data isn't out there that is going to allow me to do a really accurate or even a proper or respectable estimate of Kalecki profits. So looking to kind of give you a a, a Remnant B number or even a percentage point change is fraught with difficulty. So what you're getting here is uh, my best guess. And, of course, my best guess quite possibly – uh, maybe, um, you know, the, the, the conclusions may fall um, outside or, 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 or maybe disproved within the range of potential error. However, let's just take a quick look at it. Um, I think that my estimate of growth, of spending on gross uh, capital spending slowed to 8%, which would have cut uh, estimated capital stock growth to about 8.3%. That's down from... 8.7 in 2018, and growth of net investment. I, when you uh, when you x out uh, depreciation, to about 7.8 percent. Um, so there's some growth there. Uh, other factors at work include a rising trade surplus. We're up to about 2.98 trillion uh, in 2019 versus 2.43 in 2018. And a widening fiscal deficit, which is also positive for profit, corporate profits. I reckon that, that comes in at about 4.2 trillion in 2019 versus 3.75 in 2018. Take, put all these things together, and they imply a rise in Kalecki profits of about 9.7%, which compares to about 9.2% in 2018, but also compares with a nominal GDP growth of about 8.6%. So probably profits are accelerating mildly and are accelerating slightly as a percentage of GDP as well. There's a final factor that isn't in there, which is a question of household sector uh, dissaving from income. 
And uh, judging from quarterly surveys of income and spending, I think that uh, that disk saving rose about 8.7%, which was unchanged from 2018, essentially in line with GDP growth. Overall, then, I think it's fair to expect that Kalecki profits probably rose very slightly faster than nominal GDP, which I think you have to chalk off as a success. Similarly, if capital stock growth slowed to about 8.3%, while nominal GDP uh, was running at about 8.6%, then obviously your asset turns were rising very slightly, uh, and you have a slight uptick, therefore, in the return on capital directional indicator. As with so many of the charts which uh, accompany um, my analysis, and which you can find on um, my um, my blog, um, the uptick is very marginal, it's very anemic, uh, and offers really little foundations for dealing with these difficult underlying problems which China still has, which were ignored this year. So uh, the conclusion is... Scarcely encouraging, to be honest. 2019 was a year in which various compromises and backtrackings from efforts at fundamental reform kept the show on the road, yes, despite a modestly hostile external environment. However, all the problems that China had coming into 2019, they remain. And the most recent attempts to grapple with them have been abandoned without producing significant results. China is treading water. It's neither waving nor drowning. It's just been basically rather dull. The show is on the road. And I don't think there's much reason at this point to expect 2020 to be any different. Okay, uh, I now want to just uh, rip through uh, what we found from the global data from the last week. Uh, as I say, there were positive results from the U.S. and Asia, negative results from Europe. Uh, let's start with the U.S. Um, and although it was solidly positive, 26% of surprises versus 15% shocks, to be honest, the thing that caught my eye really was an unexpected shock, which was uh, November's Jolt's job opening numbers, which fell 561,000 to 6.8 million only, which is the weakest since February 2018. And what's happening is that uh, openings are narrowing in the core sectors tracking domestic demand for goods. Retail openings were down 139,000. Transport was down 40,000, which if you remember what I was talking about, the weakness in freight services and heavy truck sales that we highlighted last week, and manufacturing, of course, which fell down uh, 59,000. So, you know, those falls in job openings, the narrowing in job openings, very closely echoes what we've been saying about domestic demand, the inventory cycle, and the impact on the goods sector of the U.S. economy. It's all there. There was, however, one very striking surprise, uh, which was in the housing sector. And, uh, you know, post-holiday mortgage, weekly mortgage applications were up 30.2%. Uh, new purchase applications up 16, refinancings up 43%. Um, and the industry is plainly betting heavily on that rising demand. Housing starts in December were up 16.9% to the highest monthly total uh, since December 2006. And uh, those uh, starts are, are um, those starts are showing up all over all over the country. 
skip over to Asia. Um, here again, 22% surprises versus 13% shocks. Third positive week in a row. And uh, this was enough to put the six-week signal back into positive territory for the first time since September 2019. And it's likely to stay there, I think, for the time being, too. Uh, there's no escaping it. The week was really dominated by China's big data dump on Friday. Generally speaking, this was uh, slightly better than expected. Industrial production up 6.9%. Urban fixed asset investment up 5.4%. Capacity utilization rates in 4Q up slightly better than expected. And uh, a better than expected uh, set of new property prices from the 70 cities survey. Um, the remainder of, of, of China's December data was pretty much unexceptional. Uh, retail sales up 8%, electricity production 3.5%, export 7.4%, money M2, 8.7%, uh, bank lending and aggregate financing, basically where you'd expect them to be. Similarly, uh, fourth quarter GDP growth unchanged at 6%, leaving uh, 2019 GDP growth at 6.1%. Um, to the extent that these were surprises, uh, you've got to, they have a slight question mark hanging over them in terms of whether there's a bit of budget filling going on here. Um, if you look at uh, exactly where industrial production is coming from, where urban, uh, urban investment is coming from, uh, they're all kind of slightly weighted towards the uh, SOE sector or those uh, parts of the economy which are more susceptible to government um, uh, uh, encouragement, shall we say. Uh, there was one, however, genuine surprise, or one set of genuine surprises, which is what's happening in Japan in their machinery orders. Uh, core machinery orders were up 5.3% in November, uh, with a monthly movement which is actually 2.9 standard deviations above uh, historic trends, and uh, was led by uh, a 15.4% rise in, for, in uh, domestic orders. Not only that, we then got December's machine tool orders for Japan, and although they fell 33.6% year-on-year, which is a dreadful year-on-year, year, uh, that headline number uh, obscures the fact that the monthly was one and a half standard deviations above uh, seasonal trends. And again, it was led by domestic orders, 1.9 standard deviations above trend. Um, on to Europe, um, once again, uh, the disappointing uh, part of the world economy, 15% surprises, but 33% shocks. And the story of the week there was the absolutely dreadful data coming out of the UK um, in for December. Industrial production down 1.2%, services activity down 0.3%, monthly GDP estimate down 0.3%, retail sales volume down 0.6%. <laughs> Imports down 7.8%, apparently, although that'll be revised. You can be quite clear. Um, I don't think I need to say a lot about this. I've been surprised over the last six months how uh, a really quite frightening and uh, deeply depressing political environment has been met with stoic resilience in the economic numbers. And I think December was the month where, faced with the actual prospect that we might be getting a genuinely Marxist, anti-Semitic uh, government uh, finally kind of made people really pull in their horns. Um, I think this is a capstone month. 
Uh, I think that uh, things will improve over the coming months. But uh, as you should be aware, I may be talking my own book at this point, um, being uh, that most unpopular thing, apparently a, uh, a literate and economically literate uh, Brexit, pro-Brexit person. Well, that's it for this week. Um, I hope that you found it of some use or possibly even quite interesting. Uh, if you need or would like to see more and see the charts, etc., that I put out for these things, um, I have now a, a blog uh, which is on a Blockstack um, platform. I encourage you incidentally to get your Blockstack ID if you haven't already. Uh, the address is app.sigil, which is S I G L E, dot io backslash mjtaylor.id.blockstack. Um, if you've enjoyed it, um, I hope you'll drop by for uh, further issues further additions, and uh, I hope you have a good week. Bye.